Chapter Eight of the Riddle Ring by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight. Someone has blundered. Jim knocked at the door of the Moorfield sitting room soon after luncheon the following day. He was longing to tell them all about his new acquaintance, Marmaduke Coffin. He liked to tell them, and they evidently liked to hear any scrap of news or of experience out of the common. The three women loved to be amused in that way, and it delighted Jim to amuse them. Especially charmed was he when he could make Miss Vine's pale face light up with a smile. Her smile was a transformation. It really illumined her eyes and changed for the moment her whole expression. He felt sure he could make her smile if he gave her some idea of the humours of Marmaduke Coffin. His first knock remained unanswered. He could hear the tones of a piano and of an accompanying voice, or, to put it more correctly, of a voice and an accompanying piano. He knew it was Clelia's voice, and he would not disturb her song. The voice sounded low and divinely sweet and perhaps he might have said divinely sad as well. She was singing to the Moorfields, he thought. He would come back a little later. But the song ceased, and he knocked again, a very gentle tap. He wanted it to convey the idea that he would not harshly interrupt for all the world. Jim was positively becoming quite faint-hearted. A voice, the same voice, invited him to come in, and he went in, and saw that Miss Vine was seated at the piano, with her back turned to him. She did not turn round at once. She probably fancied that the knock came from one of the hotel attendants. Jim stood for a second or two, studying her shapely figure as she sat. "'I beg pardon for disturbing you,' he began in rather an awkward sort of way. He felt sure that he was awkward. Miss Vine turned round and greeted him with eyes that were undoubtedly lit up by the genuine spirit of welcome. Jim could not fail to see that. "'Mr. Conrad, I am so glad you have come.' "'I didn't know you were alone,' Jim said apologetically. "'Doesn't matter, does it?' she asked. We were expecting you, but Mrs. Moorfield and Gertrude had to go out for a short time, and they delegated me to entertain you in their absence, which I am very glad to do, to the very best of my power at all events. I hope I don't interrupt your singing. Oh, no. I was only crooning something to myself to pass the time. I am not much of a singer. But you have a very sweet voice. There isn't much range in it, and I am really not musical in the better sense at all. Won't you sit down? The Moorfields won't be long. Conrad was very fond of the Moorfields, but at the moment he did not feel particularly anxious that they should hurry home. He began to find his heart beating. He took a seat, and was about to give Miss Vine some account of Marmaduke Coffin. But in an instant he changed his mind, and resolved that Marmaduke would keep very well until the Moorfields came in. "'What are you doing today?' he asked. 
I don't know until Mrs. Moorfield comes back. You do not want to go back to London just yet? she asked in a kindly and a winning tone. There was a look of friendly interest in her eyes which touched the heart of the young man, and almost, as it seemed to him, melted it. Certainly it melted away any lingering resolve to return to London. "'I suppose I ought to go back,' he said doubtfully. "'But I don't know that I feel any strong personal inclination to return. I, I would much rather be here, be with you.' all he hastily put in the little word all because he feared otherwise the expression of his wish to be with you might sound premature and be disconcerting then why should you go back why not stay with us as long as we remain in paris why not come with us to algiers or wherever we make up our minds to go if we ever do make up our minds if you decide to go with us, then you shall have a voice in settling where to go, which, I can tell you, we three women find it pretty hard to decide for ourselves. You see, he began hesitatingly, I ought to be doing some work in life. I have only a very small fortune. It is enough for me just now, but, well, I don't know how to put it, it wouldn't be enough for one's future life don't you see? He was very awkward and much confused. She was neither awkward nor confused. She took his words with a gratified smile. Of course I understand, she said. You don't fancy I am a baby. And her look and her manner had all that easy and assured superiority which young married women naturally assume even when they are actually younger than the particular young man they are talking to. The look and the manner had often puzzled Conrad and set him thinking. Miss Vine was distinctly and unmistakably younger than he, and he could not understand why she should assume this appearance of greater experience in life. Well, if you know. Why, of course I know. You mean that you have not money enough to get married on? Yes, he answered, very much confused. I do mean that. Would that really matter much in your case? If Conrad was puzzled before, he was positively bewildered now. Would it matter much in his case? Why, the Moorfields had both told him that Miss Vine was poor. "'Why shouldn't it matter much in my case?' he asked awkwardly. "'Have you so poor an opinion of women? "'Do you think that women care for nothing but money?' "'No, I, I never said or thought anything of the kind. "'Why,' she was breaking out into emotion, "'if I loved a man, I should not care one straw "'if he hadn't a farthing in the world.' "'Ah, yes.' But a poor man might hesitate to bring a girl whom he loved into that most trying of all lives, a life of genteel poverty. I can understand a pair of loving gypsies, but genteel poverty in London. She looked at him impatiently. I don't see where the genteel poverty comes in in this case. She shrugged her shoulders in her sensitive, impatient way. 
i see it only too well he said dejectedly then the proud thought came up to his mind if this brave girl cares for me and believes in me and is willing to trust her fortunes to me why should i refuse to make myself happy why should i not take her and work for her and try to make her happy full of this thought he caught her hand in his hands she seemed a little surprised but was not in the least discomposed and allowed it to remain in his keeping for a moment do you want me to help you she asked gently to help him the words and the tone bewildered him y you can do more than help me he stammered feeling once again on very insecure ground i cannot do more than help you she said and she stood embarrassed now but i will help you all i can surely he pleaded you can do more than just give me a helping hand he could not believe even in that moment of wild hopefulness that she really meant to express her willingness to help him out with his desire to ask her to marry him what else could i do she asked blandly it is for you to decide he said for me to decide me for whom else in heaven's name oh i am afraid we don't quite understand each other she said in some confusion and she rose from her chair i am so sorry surely we can make it quite clear jim said eagerly for he felt that he was about to be dismissed and that his audience was coming disastrously to an end yes yes of course we can it was my fault altogether i shall see it all clearly some other time soon but not just now i am very impulsive i don't always give myself time to think over things it was a fault of mine since i was a child good-bye for the present but i shall see you again unhappy jim asked forlornly yes oh yes she answered with an embarrassed manner and then she added more decisively yes mr conrad i should be very glad to see you soon again i am afraid i have been making some sort of mistake it is no matter perhaps but we had better have it out i think when can you let me see you the perplexed and disconsolate jim asked he hardly knew where he was now i don't know not today the moorfields are just coming in and they will expect you to take them somewhere have you any place in your mind oh there are lots of places that's all right they will want to see something new are you not coming i no i can't go today i have to write a lot of letters and anyhow i have done my duty at least i haven't done my duty for i was told off to entertain you until they came back and i'm afraid i have not much entertained you when will you see me jim asked when i don't know but i will send for you perhaps tomorrow if you will come i shall come jim said gloomily as if he were invited to come up for sentence 
in fact he had a kind of vaguely pervading idea that he was to be invited to come up for sentence then the moorfields came in and gertrude greeted jim with so sweet and kind a look and such a sympathetic pressure of the hand that he fancied she must surely know what his hopes had been and what was to come of them and she must have pitied him in her sisterly and compassionate little heart he looked into her eyes with a sense of tender gratefulness and she dropped her eyelids under his glance and a colour came into her cheeks she has the true soul of sympathy that girl jim thought then they talked about what they were going to do and jim suggested all sorts of places to see and at last they agreed upon their arrangements and then it was discovered for the first time by the moorfields that miss vine could not go with them mrs moorfield and gertrude were sorry jim was probably a good deal more sorry although he knew that even if clelia had consented to accompany them he should not have had the slightest chance of any real talk with her and this no doubt helped to reconcile him to her remaining at home for he was sure that he would have found it all too tantalizing to be with clelia and not to have an opportunity of asking her what had gone wrong between them he was so fond of the moorfields that he wanted to give himself up altogether to the task of amusing them and making the day pleasant for them and he knew that under the conditions he was not capable of doing this if miss vine were to be one of the company this is the way of enamoured youth it would often rather be without the loved object altogether than not have the loved object all to itself under present conditions with the loved object present jim could not possibly attend to the moorfields with the loved object out of sight he could at all events make himself agreeable and help a little to render life pleasant for people whom he loved to please so he took the moorfields to see all sorts of places which had associations worth treasuring and he thought miss moorfield more than ever kind and sweet and he was touched by many a grateful glance of her eyes and he hoped that she might soon meet someone who could love her and appreciate her and make her spirits all of comfort as someone in shakespeare puts it so jim had on the whole a quietly happy day but he excused himself from dining with the mother and daughter he felt under a sort of obligation to remain away until clelia had called him up for judgment and passed sentence some readers may perhaps have come already to the conclusion that jim conrad was a very fickle young man who did not know his own mind a very lighter love in fact he had just been lamenting the loss of one sweetheart why it may be asked by censorious observers should he already be seeking for another perhaps to begin with there is no condition in which the heart of man at least so yearningly stretches out its tendrils to find a new love as that into which it feels itself plunged when it has been cruelly shaken out of the old love but the truth is that when jim fell in with his so-called first love he was in that time of life and that form of temperament when a young man must fall in love with some woman 
or perish in the attempt he was in love with being in love he was in love with his beautiful betrayer he thought her beautiful others no doubt did not just as romeo was in love with rosaline romeo was in love with rosaline because the time had come when he must begin to be in love with some woman rosaline came in his way and he found her and fancied that he fell in love with her but was his love for juliet the less sincere because he really loved her after having fancied that he loved another did he not die for juliet and what could he have done more to prove his love he certainly did not die for rosaline why should any one not allow to jim conrad that which we all allow to romeo jim was certainly not anything like so picturesque a figure as romeo but he has his equal rights as a man and a brother jim dined somewhere and looked in at a theatre and felt dismal and eagerly he wished the morrow like the unhappy young man in the raven he dragged himself home forlornly to the grand hotel and he sat in the courtyard and called for cognac and a siphon and set himself to smoke presently he heard a cheery voice ringing in his ears and behold he saw mr albert edward whaley before him hello mr whaley exclaimed i am so glad to see you may i sit down here and join you in a smoke and a drink why certainly jim said i am delighted to see you and really he was for he was glad to be roused out of his melancholy and his uncertainty and the gladsome voice of mr whaley sounded quite musically to his somewhat lonely sense well look here i have some good news to tell you mr whaley exclaimed here garçon du cognac s'il vous plaît thanks old man this was to jim don't trouble yourself i have a cigar well what is your good news uh, of course it don't greatly concern you but i'd take you to be a good-natured sort of chap and you'll be glad to hear it i'm sure i shall if it pleases you jim brought out feebly he was still thinking of clelia vine it's this i've heard from my pal my chief i mean you know not really jim was not quite absorbed in interest yes but i have there and do you know where he is just now of all places in the world sorry to say i have not the slightest idea in paris in paris <laughs> not a bit of it but fancy i have been hunting him half over the world and he writes me from london how lucky for you he is so near yes it is lucky for me and i shall go over to-morrow he is full of good spirits and has quite a new thing on which he says is the best thing he ever tumbled into some sort of speculation speculation bless you well yes i suppose some people would call it a speculation but somehow to my mind it seems rather too big a thing for that sort of name i say old man i wish we could bring you into it can't you be prevailed upon to stand in i'm afraid i haven't any head for finance jim mumbled languidly he was not without interest in his companion but he knew he could not form any sensible opinion as to the scheme 
besides he was thinking of his next interview with miss vine and what might possibly come of it finance oh bless you this is something rather bigger than mere finance i say didn't you tell me you were a book-writing sort of chap i told you i had a great ambition to write books works of fiction novels you know jim put in modestly well well yes to be sure see there now you have an ambition to write novels well and why not well why not jim rejoined now rather amused as i say why not but look here you might make a first-class a one copper fastened sort of novel out of many a thing we could put you up to take my word for it mr whaley's eyes were sparkling with excitement and he poured out more cognac and drenched it but did not drench it quite too lavishly from the siphon some of the pulses of jim's romantic nature were stirred by the suggestion of this possible opening of a new vein of romance for him the instinct of the embryo novelist thrilled him into a new and lively interest he was thinking too that to-morrow might be a fatal day in the story of his love affair he felt very much in the mood of the immemorial lover who says to his own soul overnight that if she will not have him to-morrow he will take the queen's shilling before the evening what is your enterprise may i ask he said with an air of becoming languor and personal unconcern for look you he was not going to give himself away and acknowledge himself a person who was quite ready to join in any manner of undertaking well it looks like a pretty big thing this time we have been in a lot of adventures and enterprises together and some of them turned out successes and some of them turned out very considerable failures i can tell you i'm not a chap that minds a failure now and again i may say i'd much rather have a big exciting failure than a dull little tuppenny halfpenny success now if i size you up properly and i think i do in a general sort of way know my man when i see him i should say that you are a chap of just the same humour it takes a good deal to frighten you i'll be bound well i don't think i am more easily frightened than my neighbours jim replied modestly the compliment for it was evidently meant to be accepted as a compliment pleased him all the same he was still a very young man no i shouldn't fancy you were well i'll tell you something about it but i say look here there's another man i must see man i told you of in fact hairdresser rudela pay you know have you seen him marmaduke coffin oh yes i have seen him and jim said suddenly remembering the fact he is coming here to have a smoke at eleven this very night jim to tell the truth had been forgetting the appointment don't mean to say so i am glad that's very lucky for i shouldn't be quite certain of how to get hold of him to-night did he positively say he would come at eleven he did positively then he's sure to be here punctual as the needle to the pole or grandfather's clock or anything else you like it's now twenty-five minutes to eleven we shan't have long to wait you are going over to-morrow like a shot i'd go over to-night if i could but that can't be worked and i should like to see old coffin anyhow 
does coffin go over too over to london to london yes oh no lord bless you no coffin never goes anywhere he always stays here he don't like london besides he has his work to do here his work why yes didn't you see him and mr waley broke into a merry laugh why hair-cutting of course what else could it be jim saw that there was some immense joke concealed under the words but he could not pretend to make it out well i suppose hair-cutting is his business jim said rather sulkily in life few things are more irritating to the nervous temperament than to be kept outside a joke to have a little joke going on apart and not to be allowed to share its humours jim fancied himself to be at least as clever as most people in seeing a joke mr waley indulged himself in a fresh burst of laughter why of course hairdressing is his business i used to hear at school that there was a difference between vocation and avocation one was the regular thing don't you know and the other was a sort of interlude let me see now let me pull myself together how was it yes of course vocation was the regular business and anything else was the avocation i give you my word i'm not quite certain which is coffin's vocation and which is his avocation jim did not think he was bound to care much either way and he certainly had no intention of expressing any curiosity on the subject so he smoked his cigar and sipped his brandy-and-water in silence for a time mr waley did not remain silent he kept talking on about anything that came uppermost to his mind and did not seem to notice whether jim was listening to him or not jim for his part was beginning to get a little bit weary of the companionship but he was not going to lose his chance of a sensation story just yet End of chapter 8